Hey everyone, welcome to Rolling Hills Online. Wherever you are in the world, we're glad that you're joining us today. In addition to our online campus, we have two physical locations in Franklin and Nolensville. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you in person. If this is your first time joining us, we would like to invite you to check out our new here page at rollinghillscommunity.org. Here, you can find out more about who we are, what we believe, and what to expect when worshiping with us. If you've been with us before and want to find out how to get involved, please visit our Next Steps page. This is where you can learn more about baptism, partnership, missions, community groups, and more. If you're joining us live, we encourage you to jump into our chat. This is a great way to connect with our online community and further discuss today's message. In addition to the chat feature, you will find today's sermon notes and a link to the Bible so that you can follow along. Have something that you would like for us to pray with you about? Click the prayer request link at the bottom of the page. We would be honored to join you in prayer this week. If you feel called to partner with us financially, you can give online through the giving page of our website. Your support allows us to continue this opportunity to share the message of Christ around the world. So thank you. Again, welcome to Rolling Hills. We hope that you feel at home. I believe. I believe. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. I believe. I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Our Lord. Our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, but on the third day, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe. I believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Yes, Lord, the forgiveness of sins. Bless you, God, for forgiving our sins. The resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Would you pray with me? Holy God, we come to you today as a people declaring that we believe in you but also confessing that we are sometimes a people who don't rightly know you. We come today declaring to God that we believe in you, but we want that belief to mean something. And Father, we ask that somehow in this place, by your power, that you would impress upon our hearts to what it, what it truly means to be your followers. Thank you for your son, Jesus, crucified in our place so that we might claim life with you. May you be honored by the words that we say and the songs that we sing today, but more importantly, God, by the attitudes and the hearts in which we bring them. Change us, God, in a way that only you can. It's in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. 
Amen. So that was the Apostles' Creed. Um, a little bit of liberty with the Apostles' Creed. And there's probably a lot of people in here who grew up in some sort of tradition where you maybe recited a creed like that or, um, or were even required to memorize a creed like that. And some of you are sitting there going, Creed, that's a band from the 90s and I didn't like them. Okay, so like, it's okay. We come to this place always, every week, from different spots and different points of view. That creed, the Apostles' Creed, um, was... I guess, first written as early as 390, and it's been used by the early church and this church for generations to describe what it is we believe, because everybody needs some sort of system or some sort of organized thought about what it is that we believe to be true about God's Word and what it is that we believe to be true about God, and that is just a concise way of saying it. Like, these few words in the Apostles' Creed are are saying a whole lot in just a little bit. It's not Alison Krauss saying a whole lot when you say nothing at all. It's like a tweet. You're saying as much as you possibly can in just as few characters as possible. And what it does, it helps organize and be able to state what it is that you think is true about God and what it is you think is true about this life that we live and what really, really matters. Welcome to Trail Guide. Um, This for us is a series um, that seeks to define discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are We hear this all the time. Maybe it's just the job that I have as a pastor. Maybe it's the title that I get to hold now. But like we hear this all the time. I want to go deeper or or, or I want to really deepen my faith or I want to be a a, a deeper disciple in the Word. And those are all great admirations and great hopes, especially as we start a brand new year and we seek to make resolutions that are going to help us in this life. Like what does it mean? Like when someone said there are as many definitions of discipleship in depth as there are of what it means to be a Christian. And so we're going to outline over the next few weeks Just what are the components that rise to the top and that really seem to matter for us? When you came in today, I hope that you received or maybe took not just a worship guide with opportunities to take notes and opportunities to know what's going on in the life of our church and opportunities to present prayer requests or to let us know who you are as a guest. I hope that you also received a copy of a trail guide. Um, It's a four-part brochure that identifies for us what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it actually seeks to define that phrase, what is discipleship? And what does it mean to be a disciple? It's in your worship guide this morning, and it's also in that brochure. But here's how we are seeking to define that word in this context. A disciple is a growing follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that's great, but what's a growing follower? Well, a growing follower is a believer who is taking intentional steps toward Christ-likeness and investing in others to do the same. A disciple is not some next-level, higher version of a basic, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian. In fact, You can't be a Christian without being a disciple lest you really confuse what the definition of Christian is to begin with. And so we're going to teeter on the edge of day saying that a a Christian, a a Christ follower, is a disciple who's taking intentional steps towards Christ-likeness and also investing in others to do the same. In fact, in Scripture, we don't get the word discipleship. It's not mentioned. Well, that's kind of weird because it's a big important part of what our life is as believers. It's actually the word make disciples is what exists. And it appears two times in the New Testament. Both of those times are about going out and making converts. But in the context of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, it inspires us to know that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are always growing. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to identify four parts of that that are crucial to the life of every believer. And the first is what we'll talk about today, what it means to identify with Christ. A a, a disciple is someone who has identified with Jesus Christ. Next, they're growing in their faith. They're growing in their faith. Next, they're sharing the mission. They're sharing the load and the burden of what it means to be the kingdom of God here on this earth. And finally, they're multiplying their life in the lives of other people. And there's a lot that I love about this definition. 
I, mean, I could unpack every single word, but the first one is growing. It means a growing follower. I'm glad that we didn't say a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that we threw the word growing in there because it, it reminds us that we're all to be growing. We never arrive. We never get all the way there. We're always moving towards what it means to be more like Jesus. And unfortunately, sometimes we're moving backwards towards what it means to not be like Jesus. But we ought to always course correct and know that a disciple of Jesus Christ is a growing follower who is moving ever closer to what it means to be like Christ. That's our process, and it's our purpose, and it's our life as believers is to be growing followers of Christ. And I'm really glad that we included that word, Christ. That a disciple is not just a growing follower of Jesus, because I think especially in our world today where definitions of Christianity and definitions of God's word and the value that it places in our lives are being threatened all the time, I think that there are people out there who would call themselves Christians who think, I am a disciple of Jesus the teacher. Jesus, who said really great things about loving others. I'm a disciple of Jesus, the miracle worker who sought to help the oppressed. I'm a disciple of Jesus, the crusader who helped the fight of justice in the world and who combated injustice in the world. I want to be a Christian just so that I can follow Jesus because he was an incredible man, an incredible teacher, an incredible purveyor of what it means to be right in the world. That's great, but I don't want to just follow Jesus the teacher, or Jesus the miracle worker, or Jesus the crusader for justice, because that's not enough. I want to follow Jesus Christ. That word Christ means Messiah. That word Messiah means Savior. It's not enough for me to be a pastor who teaches people all the great things that Jesus said about how we're supposed to love one another. I have to teach people about all the things that Jesus did to illustrate that love for one another, and the best of which, dying on the cross to save people from their sins. He was not just a great teacher. He wasn't just a phenomenal healer. He wasn't just a crusader. He wasn't just a corrector of all the wrongs that were illed in the world. He was also the lamb that was slain on the cross, crucified for the sins of the world. And without that, we don't have anything else. It's important that we are not just making disciples of Jesus. There's a lot of good teaching in there. We're making disciples of Jesus, the crucified Christ. It's very popular in our world today to determine that we're only going to follow specific things that Jesus had time to say in three years. We diminish his divinity when we forget that every single word in this book is authored by God himself and that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was there from the beginning, penning these words for us so that we would know how to live and breathe and move as disciples of his. They all matter. Ooh, who built this soapbox? Let me get off of it. I love that part of our definition. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a leader. He's not just some guy with a whole lot of really good principles for living. He's our Messiah. I love other parts of the definition almost with as much passion. I, I, I love the idea that it says that it's a believer in Jesus Christ who's taking intentional steps towards Christ-likeness, and that it's the believer who's taking the steps. I love the idea of discipleship, that it's not some pastor or some parent or some leader doing that for you, and that your level of growth in this life as a follower of Jesus Christ ultimately is dependent upon you, and that it's not up to someone else to feed you and create for you all of the opportunities that you need in life to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're supposed to take a bite yourself, that we're all taking intentional steps. And I love the idea that there's the word and in that definition, that it's not about growing to be like Christ, or 
investing our life in others so that they can know Christ. It's both. It's growth and faith sharing. It's growth and evangelism. It's growth and witnessing to the effects of what we've seen accomplished in our life by the power of a cross. It's an and. And to celebrate the disciple of Jesus Christ who's taking seminary-level Greek more than we celebrate the disciple of Jesus Christ who's teaching first grade in Main Street this morning is to commit idolatry and to value one part of our walk with Jesus over the other when both are supposed to be present in our lives. I I want us over the next few weeks and really maybe over the rest of our lives to commit ourselves to being ever-growing followers of Jesus Christ who are taking daily, weekly, hourly intentional steps towards Christ-likeness and investing our lives in others to do the same. So, If we're going to do that, we have to know what it means to be a growing follower of Jesus Christ. And it starts with being someone who has identified with him. Identified with what? Well, that would be, what does it even mean? What does it mean if somebody is brought into your life this week and it's, it's a brand new person that you didn't know before, it's a coworker that just transferred here, it's a parent of a child that's new in your kid's class, it's a new neighbor that just moved in down the street or somebody that you just haven't met yet and they are not a professing follower of Jesus Christ. We just busted our Bible Belt bubbles because not everyone professes faith in Jesus. Not everyone believes that this way is the only way or even a way towards some sort of eternal life if they even believe in that kind of eternal life. So, so what does it mean and how do you articulate to those people your system of beliefs, your, your credo of what it is to be and know and follow Jesus, I'm not talking about striking up the spiritual conversations because there's all kinds of methods for doing that. I'm not talking about earning the right to be heard by living a life of such integrity that people want to know what your opinions and thoughts are on all matters. Those are great, and they are conversations for another day, but ultimately I'm talking about once you have the open door and once you can have the conversation, how do you sum up what it is we believe? There's a really important statement, and a lot of people have said it. I first heard it from Rick Warren. He's a pastor that's still living out in Southern California. I think he was quoting C.S. Lewis, who wrote it in a book. Ultimately, we attribute C.S. Lewis quoting it from Augustine, but we can't trace it anywhere past these German reformers who said this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And what it means is that there are some things about our faith that we absolutely 100% have to agree on all the time. And there's some things about our faith that we can just choose to disagree on, but that even when we disagree, we have to do it in a kind way because that's what Christ would want us to do. And we love the sentence, and it's great, and it makes so much sense. And people have been saying it for generations. If you go to church websites on the About What We Believe page, a lot of them, evangelical churches today, they have this quote, and they'll all say that it came from someone different. We teach it in our partnership class that in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, and love and kindness, and those are all great, but eventually somebody has to help you land, that's a great sentence, on just what the essentials are. What are they? What are the things that a person is supposed to be, know, and do to call themselves a Christian? What is, uh, what is it that a person is supposed to be, know, or do in order to call themselves a pastor? What is it that a person is supposed to be, know, or do to call themselves a minister or to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And we know that salvation is free, and so we don't have to be, know, and do anything to achieve Christ. But once we are a follower of his, what things will be true about us in seminary right at the start? They gave us a list of statements called Be No Do. And they wanted to us to uh, affirm and unpack what we understood 
to be true about the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. And at the end of seminary, you were supposed to come back to all of those statements and write about them again and see what had changed over the course of your study. What had been just something that you had learned as a kid growing up as a Methodist or a Baptist or a Catholic that wasn't necessarily supposed to be true of all Christ's followers? And what are the things that you may not have been taught growing up, but that were absolutely 100% necessarily true for anyone who professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. What is it that a person has to be no do in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, in order to call themselves a Christ follower or a disciple? Ultimately, we're asking the question, what does it mean to be saved? And that's a big word that needs a whole lot of unpacking in all of our lives, but it starts with, what is it that we're being saved from? What, what are these essentials that help us to know what in the world it means when someone identifies with Jesus Christ? I'm going to start in um, the book of Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me there today, um, that would be great. It's one of Paul's letters, and it's a letter written from prison to a church that needed to hear a word from him, and he unpacks for us in really the whole book what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and we're going to isolate a couple of words today that help us understand that phrase, identify. Starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We could stop there. That's doomed. The Bible identifies for us in those words what Romans 3.23 sums up when it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This word, death, is how Paul used to describe our state of life without Christ. The first step in identifying with Jesus is to recognize the state of sin we are in. And according to the Bible, that state is death. Not just unconscious not just in need of some sort of resuscitation, not just, hey, give me some CPR because I'm feeling a little bit dead. I wonder if we get that, the gravity of that word. Dead in Greek, the original language of the New Testament is nekros, and it literally means one that has breathed his last, lifeless, deceased, departed, one whose soul is in heaven or hell, as the case may be, destitute of life without life, inanimate. And so we don't have any question about just how far Jesus went for us. That word death, necros, is the same word that's in Luke chapter 24 when an angel's sitting on a rock and some ladies are coming because they want to embalm the body of Jesus Christ. And he says, why do you seek the living among the necros? He was here, but he's not because he's alive. And the opposite of life is death. And that's the state that we're in apart from Christ. And Paul wants to go really far to describe for us that death is eternal separation from God. And I don't think we understand the gravity of what that death is. Even if we've experienced significant loss in our life, we look at spiritual death a little bit more like a Looney Tunes cartoon where Daffy Duck is standing there and Elmer Fudd comes up to him and shoots him at point blank range with a big rifle and all of his feathers fall off, but he's still standing there breathing saying, suffering succotash. That's not the same thing. Death is death, and there's no word that comes after it. There's no breathing that comes after it. It's not a comedy. It's not a simple consequence. It's an eternal state of being completely separated from God. And until we understand the vastness of our sin before God, we will totally neglect to get the vastness of the mercy we have in God. I'm worried 
not like panic worried, but like a little bit worried, like spiritually worried that we as a culture and as a society and even as believers in Jesus Christ don't understand the gravity of sin. I'm worried of a world that downplays sin, a world that fails to understand our vileness and our offense before a holy God. I'm worried that we are more concerned with raising kids who feel bad about their behavior and who don't like consequences than we are with raising a a generation of children who understand the grief that we have brought before a holy God because what Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are by nature children of wrath and sin. I'm worried that somehow because of our education or because of our will or because of our ingenuity or our effort, we think that we can somehow minimize the effects of what our sin is. Matt Chandler writes that if you believe you can control your sin, If you believe you can control your sin, you have miscalculated the danger and you haven't learned to hate it as you should. The first step in identifying with Jesus is recognizing the state of sin that we're in and repenting of it. And we say that the word repent is turn, but you don't turn from something that you can tolerate. You don't turn from something that is mild. You don't turn from something that you can live with. You turn from something that you hate. You turn from something that is awful. You turn from something that you want to get absolutely 100% as far away from as you can. Ultimately, it's, it's the picture that we're painting in baptism that we saw today. It's why Peter in the book of Acts chapter 2 told the crowds to repent and be baptized. It's why we as a church at Rolling Hills celebrate believer's baptism after a person has come to know Christ as opposed to infant baptism, regardless of the beautiful celebration that it is for moms and dads. Guess who can't recognize the state of their sin? A cute, squishy baby who cries in order to have their needs met every day. Like, that's not the same thing. What does it mean to recognize the state of sin that we're in? To really understand where we were before Christ. Verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2 comes and it, it rescues us. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You you could unpack every single word in that sentence, piece by piece. Rich, it means abundant. It means excess. It means all that we need plus all that we don't. Like, it's that much more mercy. It's the kindness that God bestows on a sinner. It's the goodwill that he gives us, joining his life with ours as a desire to help people who can't help themselves, even while we were dead. Incapable of doing anything on our own, we were dead. He made us alive. He did that work. How did he do it? With Christ by grace. That's the unmerited favor of God. I'm not much of a science guy, but I do like and know the spiritual applications that come from Newton's first law of physics or motion or inertia, whatever you want to call it. It says this, an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed in the same direction unless acted upon by an outside unbalanced force. And there is no greater imbalance in this world than the depth of our sin and the greatness of God's love and grace to forgive us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. And until our lives, heading towards sin, living in sin, walking in sin, will stop and recognize that sin because we've been acted upon by an outside force of God's unbelievable mercy, 
There is no turning away from that. We need Christ. We need him to help us recognize our sin, and we need him to help us do the next most important thing for us to be able to identify with Jesus. It's to declare our belief in Christ and his atoning death. In his atoning death. I want to read for you Romans chapter 5, the first few verses. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, who through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, heading in that direction, moving in that same spot, unable to break character, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, this is it, this is a linchpin of our faith right here, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that this talks about. That's the tweet that we're looking for to be able to explain and help other people understand what it is our faith actually means and believes. It's not all the political garbage that we got into last semester when we're trying to fight the rest of the world and all of their unbeliefs about the Bible. It's really just one thing, that Christ died for us in our place. That's the only good news. And we can stand before a holy God because he was in our place. That's what we believe. Not some great teacher, not some moral leader, not some purveyor of justice, although Christ did more for women and children and the oppressed and the poor and he did more to conquer racism and every other social injustice that we could ever imagine past present or future but we don't declare our belief in that we declare our belief in a Christ who was crucified in our place offering us a salvation that we could not purchase for ourselves that's the theological principle of substitutionary atonement that all of my sin had to be paid for and Jesus did it that's how Paul defined the gospel in first Corinthians in chapter 15 it says this Now, I would remind you, brothers, it's really important that that's plural. We'll talk about it in a minute. I would remind you, brothers, not, okay, it's not important that it's gender specific towards men. It's really all believers, okay? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. This is it. This is the summary statement of our Christian faith, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Have you identified with Jesus? Recognized the vileness of the state of sin that you're in and declared your faith in a holy God who would put himself in your place? It's more than repeating some words. And a lot of us did that. Because somebody told us to at vacation Bible school or some Sunday school class or some preacher tent revival somewhere in the world because we're from the South. Like we raised our hands and we repeated some words and we thought, okay, that's all it takes to have the insurance policy that I need. I say this today not in a braggadocious way because I really don't think that much of myself. But like I could go in that room over there with all of the elementary school kids at Rolling Hills and I dare say in the room back here with all of the middle school kids at Rolling Hills and convince every single one of them today that they needed to profess faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. And it would be nothing more than manipulation because half of them aren't ready to recognize what their sin is anyway. 
And a good percentage of them have already declared their faith in Jesus Christ, and all I would be doing would be mudding up the waters of what they understand to be true about salvation, waters that have been, like, I don't know, soil that's been tilled and seeded and planted and cultivated by parents who love them and who teach them well. Like, we could confuse all of that right now, not because I'm some gifted communicator, but because it's manipulation. We could convince all of them right now that they need to turn from Jesus Christ, turn to Jesus Christ, or they're going to suffer the consequences, and they would. And I could say, repeat these words, and they would all repeat them. And I could say, raise your hands if you repeat them, and they would all raise their hands. And we could have the biggest baptism that we've ever had in the history of Rolling Hills next week when all of those kids come home to you this week and say they need to get dunked because they want to be sure. It's not about repeating some words. It's also not about asking Jesus into our hearts. It's it's beautiful language, and it's very symbolic, and it's very sanitized for us, and it's I've never communicated that to kids or students at Rolling Hills. We've never told them to ask Jesus into their hearts. And while that has become part of our Christian cultural language here, it's ultimately not the best picture of what it means to become a Christ follower. You see, asking Jesus into your heart sounds a lot like asking him to come over to your house. When a better picture of salvation is when you come to understand all the reasons why you on your own could never be invited to his. You see, we have no place there. Our sin is too big, it's too vile, it's too vast. And the opportunity to be there and to know him and to walk with him only comes through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're not asking him into our heart. We're asking him to forgive our sins and to apply his death to our life so that we may walk in him. It's then and only then that we're able to proceed in that hope, to live life as a disciple. Colossians chapter 1 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you want some theological terms today, that's imputed righteousness. It means you have no righteousness of your own, but that Christ righteousness has been applied to your life because of his death. And now you're able to stand in front of God, blameless and pure, holy children of light, simply because Christ's sacrifice has been applied to you. If you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. All of that continuing all of that stability, all of that steadfastness, it's only possible through lifelong, growing, committed discipleship of people in faith. You want to know why? Because every single one of us, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and our connection to Christ through a local church, will fall away from Jesus and deny the faith that we're in if we don't continue. Every single one of us will succumb to the wily works of an evil one in this world and to false teachers who according to scripture will rise up in last days and every single one of us apart from continuing in the faith that has sustained us we will fall away you've seen it you've seen someone that you know and that you love and that you respect who once held christ in high esteem 
turn, walk away, fall, reject, and no longer be a part of faith. And you're left asking, well, was it ever even real to begin with? Well, maybe. Every one of us would end up like that if we don't continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we've heard. And that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit and our connection to Christ through his church. In Romans 5, 5, we just read it. It says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit every single day to be able to walk in this new identity as Christ followers and we need the connection to a local church. You want to know why? Because 1 Corinthians 15 says brothers, plural. Because Colossians chapter 1 starts out with brethren, plural. Although I love to read the New Testament as if it's God's love letter to me, that's really a selfish application because ultimately it's God's love letter to we. And we don't continue in stable faith, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we've heard unless we're a part of it. There's a big difference between wanting it and knowing that you need it. We say that there's a difference between want and need to our kids over Christmas or anytime they ask for something in the Target store, especially if it's off the toy aisle. Oh, I need it. Well, you don't need it. And so then we have to go back and unpack what wants and needs are because they're different. Well, the same is true of following Christ. We can want to be a Christian for a variety of reasons. It's culturally acceptable here. The people are good. The community is great. We can want to be a Christian because we love the moral teachings and we love the belief system and we love the economics of what it means to be generous in the world. And those are all great things. Those are all reasons to want to be a follower of Christ and they're good. But we only know that we need to be a follower of Christ when we recognize our desperate, sin-filled situation and we see that the only solution is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place. It's only then that we can walk continually in that hope of faith. We identify with Jesus Christ in salvation. We illustrate that in things like baptism and through a deepening connection to Christ and his church. We're going to unpack that over the next couple of weeks about what it means to be growing, what it means to apply spiritual disciplines to your life, what it means to seek more spiritual knowledge and to utilize your gifts in a way that multiplies other people to know how to follow Jesus too. But first and foremost, we have to land on the page as a people who essentially believe the same thing about salvation, that we are doomed and we need Jesus. I'm afraid. I feel like all I've done is talk about fears. I'm afraid a little bit of a church and a culture where we can all talk about the language of growth and, and next steps and deepening faith and miss all of those things because we bypass the step of identifying with Christ. I'll give credit or blame, whichever you want to call it, to Matt Chandler because he said this in an interview about the Bible Belt, which we're, we're kind of theoretically a part of. It's really hard to be a minister or pastor in the Bible Belt. <laughs> Isn't it great that I can deflect all of that and say that he said it first so that I don't get credit if you don't like it? <laughs> like, it's really hard to be a minister or pastor in the Bible Belt because there's so many people who profess to be Christians when they aren't. 
because they're doing things like Christians do or they're liking stuff like Christians like or they're stating things that Christians say or they're reading books that Christians read but they bypass the step of recognizing how desperate we are because of our sin and how magnificent the sacrifice of Jesus was that saved us from all of that. We never leave that. That's not a check-the-box experience that we walk away from. We never stop identifying with Christ. I'm kind of convinced that that's why we continue to sin even as believers in Jesus, forgiven of those sins. Because if we all became perfect as soon as we went inside that water, a new kind of imperfection would grow in our lives and it's the kind of imperfection that thinks we no longer need him. Every day I'm reminded of my great need for Jesus because my sin's pretty wretched. And every day I can celebrate that substitutionary atoning sacrifice that he died in my place because ultimately the sin just gets worse. And my only ability to hate it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit operating in me and my connection to a local body of believers who remind me and inspire me every single day of what it means to follow Christ. This season is about discipleship. But you don't do any of it without first identifying with Christ. I feel like there's probably people in the room who've done that and who are confident in that and who are sitting here going, okay, I learned some things today that are going to help me unpack that for someone else. Because it's hard to articulate just what we believe and why we believe it. But that there also might be people here today who confess, in spite of all of the Christian motions that they've gone through in their life, past and present, that they've never truly identified with Jesus for salvation and understood how doomed we are because of our sin and how desperately in need we are for Christ's forgiveness. My prayer today is that we would see both kind of responses spring up in this place, that there would be those of us who are inspired now to understand even more the faith that we claim, that there will also be those who fall on their faces before God and confess a nature of sin to Him and plead with Him for forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that affords us salvation and new life in Christ. We're going to enter into a time of response and it's really a time of worship, but it's a time of inventory, hopefully, where you are asking and answering the question, have I truly identified with Jesus in my life? And then we can ask, do I continue to walk in what that new identity is? Men in our church and women in our church who are designated as ASICs and their spouses are gonna move to the outsides of this auditorium. I guess they knew that, but there are, they're ready. They're ready to pray with you and for you and to talk with you about what it means to recognize sin, declare faith in Jesus, and to walk in a brand new life.
And my prayer is that no fear, no boundary, no, no thought from an enemy would prohibit somebody from stepping out in faith and declaring who they are in Christ. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the service and we want to encourage you to reflect on today's message throughout the week. Here at Rolling Hills, our goal is to raise up a community of disciples to be the hands and feet of Christ, and we hope that you will partner with us in doing so. How do you do that? Well, here are several ways. First, join us every Sunday, either online or at one of our physical locations. Join us as we worship our God and learn more about Him and His plan for us. Second, get connected. Check out our Next Steps page on the site to find out how you can engage with us further by serving or joining a community group. And lastly, we want to invite you to partner with us financially. You can do that online through the giving section of our site. All tithes and offerings go to support our ministries both locally and internationally, enabling us to impact lives and share God's Word. Again, we are so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.